Hello and welcome to the Greenhouse Church Podcast. My name is Benj Gould and I'm the lead pastor. We are all about creating an environment where anyone can follow the way of Jesus. So we hope that this teaching helps you on your way. Our Prime Minister, Albo, uh, when he was introducing the most recent climate bill, he said something really interesting and I was, as I was listening to him. He says, this bill puts us on the right side of history. And I was listening to that, I was thinking, actually, what an interesting thought, that there is a right side of history to be on. That was like a really intriguing thought to me. I was watching, while we were away, um, A Current Affair, which my favourite show ever, Tracy Grimshaw. No, I was, I, was, I was waiting for the block to come on. And, they, you know, they do the, the, the feel-good piece at the end after they've talked about rising petrol prices or whatever, the taxpayer dollar and all that. Um, and the story was on a mentoring program, which they were tying a, um, teenagers to people in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, this beautiful mentoring program. I'm like, this is awesome. You know, the teenagers are going to learn something from our elders around people that have lived through wars and economic crisis and, you know, done the journey of life. But it turns out this mentoring program was the young person mentoring the older person um, around technology. And I was just looking at that and I was thinking, that is so interesting. Probably the first time ever in history where our young people are passing on wisdom and knowledge to the elders. And I just think we find ourselves in a really intriguing time in history. I think both those things, the idea that we can be on a right side of history and this kind of idolization of being young and um, having something to teach those that are older than us rather than the other way around is really indicative of a deeper thing going on in our culture. And it's really a Western obsession with the idea of, of progress. An obsession with the idea that the world is getting better. We are taking the world somewhere. We are in a series on idols. Uh, I spoke a couple of weeks ago on an introduction talking about idols are just good things made ultimate things. They are disordered loves, the things that we put in the center of our lives, the things that we chase after. We all worship something. We all orient our lives around something. We all move towards something. That's what worship is. But some of us are just moving towards the wrong things. We have disordered loves, as Augustine tells us, the great bishop in the third and fourth century. Um, And last week, Sienna spoke. I wasn't here, but I listened to the podcast, and it was awesome, around the Aussie dream and this, like, this pull towards consumerism and materialism and having the nice house and the weatherboard and the white and the cactus out the front and the dog and, you know, all the stuff you've got um, that we all want. Um, And I want to talk about something a a little bit more ideological this morning, and this idea of progress. The idea of progress. Our culture is obsessed with progress. Um, This idea that I am on the right side of history, and if I'm progressive enough, I'll be ahead of the curb of everyone else, and they'll eventually catch up to me. Uh, That we are more enlightened than those that have gone before. And particularly if you are sort of in the younger age bracket amongst us, you will be particularly captured by this idea. It's been coined as evolutionary optimism. So the idea of like the theory of evolution is that like slowly we are getting better. And so uh, built into that is that I am more evolved than the people that have come before me. Um, And ironically, kind of being on the right side of history 
often puts us on the left side of politics. And a little disclaimer this morning, it's going to sound like I'm very anti-progress and anti-the left. Uh, come another week and I'll, I'll rage against the right. So um, we'll, we'll even it out later. But progressivism has, has it built into this idea that there is an arc to history. We are taking the world somewhere. There is a guy called James Flynn in the 1980s. He's a, a New Zealand um, intelligence researcher. And he came up with this theory, this idea, um, based on some research that he did uh, over about 100 years, that our IQ is getting higher, that you are smarter than your parents and you're smarter than your grandparents, which we all love that idea. We all love the idea that we're getting smarter. Um, and this obviously took off, and it's still very a, a prevalent thought, but um, Flynn's theory, the Flynn effect, has been thoroughly debunked. In fact, the most recent um, theories, and it's just a theory, it's probably going to change, but that our IQ is the same as it was about 30,000 years ago. Um, and we have a lot more knowledge, a lot more, you know, we've got the internet, we can access anything on our phone, but our IQ is about the same. And in fact, the most recent research says that over the last 20 years, our IQ is actually decreasing, which is interestingly the same time that the internet has come up and social media and iPhones. Um, and so maybe you're not smarter than your parents, so sorry about that. C.S. Lewis, um, a great, great theologian and uh, social commentator, he says that the idea is chronological snobbery. The idea that, like, because we've come later, we are smarter. And the West, we have, like, thoroughly bought into this idea um, that, that in order to move towards progress, I am sort of smarter, more enlightened, have more knowledge than the people that have gone before, and therefore what I have to do is we have to unhitch ourselves from the mistakes of the past, right? Which is actually a good, a good notion, but it's just infected us so deeply. Carl Truman wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern, Modern Self, which is... Um, People, people are going crazy over it. But he says that we are an anti-history culture. In other words, we are like, we don't, we don't want to know about what's gone before. We just want to like deconstruct it. We want to like de decolonize, deinstitutionalize, deconstruct faith or sexuality or gender or whatever it is. We just want to deconstruct everything because we are moving forward. And the way to do that is like unhitch ourselves from the past. And it kind of makes sense, right? It kind of makes sense. If we're going to move forward, then what we have to do is, like, get rid of all the things that have been wrong, which there's absolutely wrong things in the past. We have to, like, unhitch ourselves from those things in order to fully move into the future. But here's the thing. Progress, this idea that sort of so captures us, has both a promise and has a problem. The promise is that with enough equality, enough like gender equality, racial equality, economic equality. Um, we can get rid of any abuse. We can get rid of any power imbalances. And we can live into this like utopia where there's like this perfect society that we can, we can work towards. That's the kind of the promise of progress. The problem is, it's not actually working. That we are, as we stand, the most equal economically, I mean, that's changing as well, but we are the most, like, diverse, multiracial, multicultural that we've ever been in human history, and yet our mental health crisis is as worse as it's ever been. Isolation is a pandemic. There's the problem and the promise of progress. N.T. Wright says, progress gave us Hiroshima and social media and anxiety. He says, the myth of progress 
can't deal with the real problem. And often in our kind of mindset, we think the problem is institution or patriarchy or um, colonization, all these things that actually have had detrimental effects on society. But the real problem is the human heart. That's what the gospel tells us. And it's the, it's the human heart that, that leads to corrupt institutions, that leads to corrupt patriarchy or whatever it is. The real problem is the human heart. And I think we are beginning to see the myth of progress fall apart. We have lived through a golden age. Yet the last couple of years, COVID, climate crisis, economic uh, unrest, geopolitical tensions, all that stuff is beginning to, like, the, the cracks are starting to appear. And it's interesting, like, I was thinking about, like, a lot of the movies that we love, often, you know, sci-fi kind of movies, Star Wars or whatever, don't, don't paint a good, good picture of the future. They don't paint, a, like, a utopian society. They, they paint a dystopian society. So Star Wars is about, like, an empire that's corrupt. There's, like, Maze Runner or June or Blade Runner, or the Hunger Games, where there's like 13 districts and everyone fights against each other to the death. You know, like, it's, um, it's pretty bad. Or there's like books like 1984, if you're a reader, or um, Brave New World. It's like deep down, we kind of know that the myth of progress isn't actually delivering on the promise. Here's the thing. Progress is actually a Christian idea. It's baked into the ark of scriptures. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 paint the picture of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are made there. And the idea, every scholar worth their salt will tell you that the idea we see in Genesis 1 and 28, this commission to, to be fruitful and multiply, to go and rule and subdue the world. And that seems like weird language to us, but what it really looks like is, is gardening. Go and create more of the Garden of Eden. And the impulse from Genesis 1 and 2 was to push us out, to progress the Garden of Eden, to tame the wilderness, to cultivate the world, to bring the best out of it, to have kids and families and towns and cities and go and create things. Like, that's, that's what the commission was from God. And then if you go right to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, um, there's the Garden City. It's like this city comes down from earth, and, the, and all the imagery is the same that we find in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the Garden but it's been progressed. There's a city and there's cultures and there's life and there's gold and there's these flowing rivers and there's trees with healing for the nation and there's no sickness or pain. It's the garden taken somewhere. That is like the bookends of Scripture. If you could just understand that, like that helps you a lot just reading the Bible, is that the, the, the human kind of project was meant to go somewhere. We were meant to take the world somewhere. So this idea of progress is actually a good thing. The pull towards progress is a... Christian idea. Historians will tell you that almost every ethical or social advancement in human history has come from the Judeo-Christian faith. Everything, uh, almost everything that is uh, moving us towards equality and human rights. Yuval Harari, a staunch atheist, he wrote a book called Sapiens, um, which is kind of this seminal work. He says this, he says, human rights are a Christian myth. Human rights are a Christian myth. Basically, what he's saying is no Christianity, no human rights. Because human rights is baked into it, this idea that we, are, we all have uh, value because we're made in the image of God. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter your sexuality. It doesn't matter how old or young you are, where you've come from. 
Every single person, whether you have a disability or whatever it is, or mental health, it doesn't matter. Everyone has a place. Everyone has value. But he says without Christianity, without that kind of foundational principle that we all are all made in the image of God, it's pretty hard to get to human rights. If you're based solely on evolutionary science, it's the idea is that there is the survival of the fittest. And so the idea that you would protect the weak among us, it doesn't make any sense. Because that idea comes from the fact that everyone has value. Everyone is valuable. But the kind of evolutionary myth is that we, um, the survival of the fittest, you, you step over the weak in order to continue to be strong, propagate the species. That's how evolution works. And the irony is that the progressive vision is built on equ equity, equality, um, but it wants to reject where those ideas have come from which is the Christian story. Mark Sayers puts it like this. He says, we want the kingdom without the king. We want, like, the benefits of the, the, the Christian ethic, but we don't want to be submitted to the way of Jesus. We want benefit without submission. And so without the basis of the story that we all have intrinsic value, that idea of human rights cannot be sustained in the long run. And so we do have this vision of progress, right? We have a, a Christian vision and maybe a secular vision. The key question is, what are we progressing towards? Who's setting the vision? Who's setting the agenda? And do we trust that agenda? And so when it comes to something like this that really is, can be an idol that captures us, certainly one that is attractive to me, that like we're taking the world somewhere, the world is getting better, that we can contribute to a better world. That is a Christian impulse, but it can be disordered. A good thing made into an ultimate thing. And if you keep yourself tied to the Christian story, what you get is both this deep value in progress, that we are taking the world somewhere, we're called to cultivate, but that we are rooted in tradition and history and an ancient way. It's, it's the Garden of Eden, the kind of founding story, it's tradition, it's story, and it's the Garden City, it's progress. Tradition and progress. It's in our story and our tradition that we find meaning. David Gushy, who is an ethicist, he says this, he says, when you don't fully appreciate tradition or history, you can neither fully adopt it or reject it. And so if we are disconnected from our story, we're disconnected from history, from tradition, from an ancient way, we can't either say, that was good, let's take that, or, and, that and let's leave, leave that. We just have to continue to reinvent, but we're missing out on the story. Kierkegaard, Jeremy, this is for you. He says, life is lived forward, but it's understood backwards. So in other words, life is lived forward. We, like, we, we go through life, but it's not until we look back on our life, we look back on history and tradition, that we begin to understand it. There's a futurist, which I think is the, like, the coolest job. I want to know how to get this job where you just sit around and try and tell the future. Her name's John, Jane, Jane McGonigal. She says, any, any futurist worth their salt will tell you that in order to look forward... All you have to do is to look back twice as far. That our future is always tied to our history. How's this? This is 
a guy called Kolakowski, who was a Polish philosopher. I'm very philosophical this morning, I'm sorry, but I'm sure you can stay with me. He says this, he says, I think, I think this... Okay, cool. <laughs> this is brilliant, this is brilliant. He says, if previous generations had not revolted against traditions, we would still be living in caves, right? But he said, but if revolt against those traditions became universal, we would be back living in caves. So the idea is that, like, if, if, if you know, think about the cavemen, they're sitting in the cave, and if, if no one of them said, how about we go, like, outside and explore? Like, we might, we could build a, a house, we could build a shelter outside of the cave, and they'd be all like, no, we're, like, we're cavemen, it's in our name, we're not going to leave the cave. If we never, like, pushed into progress, we'd still be living in caves. But if we don't value tradition and what's gone before, you know, we live in houses, we didn't invent houses, we just live in them, we'd be back living in caves again. Like, if we, if we revolt against our inherited traditions, we go back to nothing, we have to start again. So what do we do when we realize that our culture has this incredible idea of progressing towards something which we're not exactly sure what it is, but like this, it's definitely thrust towards it. But we realize we're progressing towards the wrong thing. I- idol worship, right? Which is just walking towards the wrong thing, making the good thing ultimate. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, if you're traveling the wrong way, the quickest way to go forward is to go back. If you went the wrong way as you're going to wherever you're going, the quickest way forward is not to like do a big, it's to go back and go back the right way. It's tradition and progress. Colossians chapter 2, this is where I want to land. If you could throw it up, Steve. It says this, let your roots grow down into him, that's Jesus, and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. So he's saying there are philosophies and high-sounding things that come from human thinking that you will be tempted to follow, that you will be tempted to buy into. And he says the antidote, antidote to that, which is in verse 7, if you can go back, Steve, is letting your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. And then he goes on a couple of verses later in in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, "Um, Since you've been raised to in your life of Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. So let your roots grow down into Jesus and set your sights on the realities of heaven. That is like this idea of tradition and progress. Setting our realities of heaven, that's Revelation 21 and 22, the garden city, the, the vision of progress. Every tribe and every tongue, no hurting or sickness or pain. I love that idea that like a, a tree holds in it both the past and the future. Our, our roots grow deep down into our past. It comes from a seed, which comes from a tree, which comes from previous orchards and generations of trees. And then we grow fruit which has seeds, which turns into trees and future generations of orchards. In the story of the tree, you both have tradition, our roots, and you have fruit, progress. The idea of progress has to be 
balanced with an ancient way. It's the tension of past and future, tradition and progress. We need both. I think many of us get tempted to have a disordered view of progress, that we're like progressing towards something, and we just unhitch ourselves from the sins of the past, which we absolutely should. We should deconstruct things that have been unhelpful to humanity. But deep down, we end up wanting the kingdom of God without the king, blessing without obedience. Now, this is a, a pretty political talk, right? Um, but Tim, Tim Keller, he, he talks about the early church. And the early church had really five political key kind of social things that separated it from the Roman Empire. It was very subversive. It was like all these people meeting in these homes grew rapidly and um, just turned the world upside down. Ended up being the, the crumbling of the Roman Empire. Um, but he says that there are five things, five kind of key distinctives of the early Christian movement, and now I'm going to land. He said the first one was that it was multiracial, that there was this deep connection between Jew and Gentile. Most of the New Testament is written about bringing those two different cultures together. Um, number two, uh, the early church cared for the poor, deeply cared for those that were marginalized, the slaves, women, children, the uh, refugees, brought, brought everyone into these communities. Uh, number three, it was marked by nonviolence. It was a nonviolent movement. Number four, uh, what you would call pro-life. They were against abortion, infanticide, where people would go and leave out unwanted babies. The Christians would come. It was the first form of adoption. They would come and take babies. Very, uh, very aware of uh, pro-life issues because they were grounded in the idea that everyone is made in the image of God. And then the, fourth, the fifth one was a revolutionized sex ethic. That would say one man, one woman for life, where in, in a culture where the men could go and sleep with anyone they wanted, the woman couldn't. And so it's just this radical new formation and new co community. Now we can, you know, there's nuance to each of these, we can debate, debate those, but that, that, that's the way it was in the early church. Um, and he says, Keller says, it's really interesting if you map that against kind of like modern politics. He says the first two are traditionally kind of on the left, multiracial, caring for the poor. The last two are traditionally kind of conservative views, pro-life, traditional sex ethic. And the last one, the, the one in the middle, non-violence, doesn't fit anywhere. Um, and he says, his, his point is, his point is, there is no one political vision that is a, a Christian political vision. And he said, the idea is not to find ourselves in the center, like in the middle, which is what I'm always tempted to do, just find just the safe ground in the middle where both ends hate you. Um, <laughs> we, he says, the Christian movement is not centrist. The Christian movement is a, a patchwork of extremes. He says, we fit everywhere and we fit nowhere at the same time. And my whole idea, my whole point around that is, um, is that for us, our challenge is if your views, your social views, your political views fit completely in one political party, chances are you are formed way more by the political party than you are by the way of Jesus. We fit everywhere and we fit nowhere. We are a patchwork of extremes. We are an alternate community. 
we are working towards an alternate vision, an alternate uh, progress towards the garden city where every tribe and tongue is welcome, where there's healing for the nations, where, where God will wipe away every tear and sickness. So what do we do when we think we might have a little scrap of an idol in us around our vision, what we're working towards? Well, the same things we've been saying. We recognize the idol. The first part is just naming it. The second one is to repent, which is a churchy word, but it just means to change your mind or to turn. Instead of aiming at that thing, you aim back against the king. The kingdom of God, Jesus, must always be central to us. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, nothing else can take that place of centrality other than Jesus, his kingdom, and his way. We always get tempted just to go off course, to get disorientated, to recenter our lives around something else. It's part of the human condition. We recognize, we repent, and we replace. We replace working towards a certain vision with the vision of the kingdom. We worship the king rather than other things. That's good. To everything, to every idol, there is a gospel yes and a gospel no. There are certain things that the gospel says yes to, the certain thing that gospel says no to. This is just a message again to remember that we follow Jesus. We don't follow any political vision. We don't follow any ideologies. We follow the way of Jesus. And that says yes to some things sometimes and no to other things. And we find ourselves in awkward positions because we say yes to that and no to that and I, yes to that and no to that. And we just, we're a patchwork of extremes. We fit everywhere and we fit nowhere. We are an alternate community. Father, I thank you that you have a vision for this world. King Jesus, we want to live as an alternative community following your alternative way. And God, we know that isn't easy. It's, it's confusing and it's not black and white and there's nuance and people will love us sometimes and hate us other times. But I pray for us, both as individually individuals and as a community that we wouldn't follow anyone else any other philosophy other than that of you king jesus your way your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven so i just pray that you would speak to us holy spirit right now we just give you this moment god would you confront us would you tap on ways where we are maybe formed by other things more than we're formed by your story and your way? God, we know there's always going to be stuff that we're challenged with, stuff that we maybe disagree with, stuff that we're wrestling through in your story and in your scriptures and in tradition. But thank you that you have given us your spirit, a spirit of wisdom our guide. May you speak to us and may we be people who listen. Help us as we continue to navigate the future of our world and society and the growing tensions and problems and disagreements. May we, may we be people who live an alternate way.
marked by love, marked by hope, marked by peace, and marked by joy. Would you continue to, to teach us, shape us, 